0: Hi, and welcome to episode 19 of The Epic Pencil, a regular venue for original writing, conversations with writers, and more. I'm your host, Chris Watson. Thanks for joining me for tonight's episode, Changing States. The last five days have been, quite frankly, exhausting, as we've come out from the far side of election day, with at least some level of certainty about how the future will be shaped. I've never missed voting in an election, and even as a kid was fascinated by the process, though not so fascinated that I ever had the desire to throw my own hat in the ring. Tonight, in response to the prompt Changing States, I sat down to write and found myself thinking about my own history as a voter and how my attitudes and enthusiasm have changed over time. When I finished and shared it with my writing group, the immediate response was, get it up on the podcast, tonight. So, who am I to argue with them? I hope you enjoyed tonight's piece. I learned about voting as a kid in Rhode Island. Every few years, someone would wheel into our schools a massive booth with switches, a giant lever, and a gray curtain that would swish-clink shut on metal bearings. An adult would stand up in front of us and explain the importance of voting to our community and our country, how the decisions we would make would determine our future. And then we lined up and, one at a time, had an opportunity to step behind the wizard's curtain to flip the switches for no candidates in particular, and then pull the giant lever with a solid and satisfying chunk that drove the pegs forward and permanently marked our life-changing choices with precise holes in the ballot. Ballot. What a wonderful word. The power of the ballot. The right of every American, eventually, finally, and not without an ongoing struggle, to make their voices heard. In the era of Reagan, we were told that our right to the ballot was something that set us apart from the godless commies that the old-timers in the neighborhood and media up-and-comers like Rush Limbaugh liked to, shall we say, not so politely discuss. I grew up seeing that the power of the ballot was not necessarily absolute, though. Every few years as a kid, we would gather at a neighbor's house, my parents and I and my little sister, to collect pamphlets and troop through our designated blocks to convince the residents that this year, not next time, but this year, would be the year that someone honest would become mayor of Providence. Then we'd all return to the same house, enjoy some pizza, and wait for Election Day. My parents would dutifully vote and then attempt to refrain from swearing in front of me as Buddy Cianci again would charm the little old ladies and everyone else into giving him another few years in office. But this was also the era of Claiborne Pell and John Chafee, and if given the opportunity, it was perfectly acceptable for my parents and others to go into the voting booth and split the ticket and vote for both good men with the flick of a switch and the lever's kerchunk. And even if you didn't like the opponent or the incumbent, there was still a sense of respect expected. My friends and I started to dance when, on the way back from a weekend on Block Island, we heard that Ronald Reagan had been shot. We thought our parents would be happy, as all of them were terrified of his politics and the thought he'd bring fiery nuclear death down upon us. But instead, they spoke with the experience of growing up in the shadows of John Bobby and Martin's assassinations. We were silenced and scolded. Our parents drilling into us the message that the assassination of a national leader was a horrible thing that tore apart the country and weakened us from within, regardless of their politics. But it was still perfectly all right to speak out against them, to raise money and energy and volunteer in opposition to them, and then go into the booth and vote for the other guy. I never got to cast my vote using that magic booth. My 18th birthday came during my senior year of high school, and then I changed states, moving to Minnesota for college. My first roommate met me wearing a t-shirt that showed a red continental U.S., all but for a blue Minnesota and the slogan, Ronald Reagan, not our fault, as Minnesota had been the sole state not to fall to his charms. Welcome to life at a liberal arts college in a liberal metro area among the rural red. The next election was sophomore year and I was still in Minnesota, which used fill-in-the-dot ballots that caused PTSD for those of us only recently beyond the reach of the SATs. And that's when I first tasted what it was like to vote for the losing side. Did I love Dukakis as a candidate? No, but he was a Democrat, or Democrat farm labor in minnesota ease, and there was no way I'd vote for Bush. Voting for a loser sucked, but the world didn't swirl into the hellmouth, and life went on. In 1990, I crossed the aisle and enthusiastically voted for the Republican candidate for governor, Arnie Carlson, because, like John Chafee, he was a good man and a moderate. Plus, all of us on campus thought the incumbent, Rudy Perpich, was kind of a colossal dick. And did Minnesota really need a chopstick factory in the northern woods? At the same time, college professor Paul Wellstone gave me my first taste of a truly popular, exciting, engaging candidate as he crisscrossed the state in a school bus and pickup truck and got all of us DFLers on campuses across the state to hit the streets enthusiastically in support of his cause. Then came 1992. I was out of college and back in New England, and I drove home to Rhode Island from my job on Cape Cod to be sure to vote for Clinton and Gore and stay up until the winner was announced. Was that when things began to change? Was that when the tone of our elections began to get vicious and the space between election days began to curdle too? Or had it always been like that and I just never saw it? Elections in Rhode Island and Connecticut and Massachusetts and Minnesota always seemed engaged, energetic, passionate, but not necessarily vicious or cruel or corrupt. Okay, maybe Rhode Island was corrupt, but Buddy Sandy did come across as a nice guy when he was out pressing the flesh and meeting voters. 1992 and the years after became something different. The passion and enthusiasm felt like they were gone or were hanging out with just a few local candidates here and there. Clinton was another colossal disappointment in his own way, with charisma sufficient to fill a large hotel and a list of policies that were in the right column, so I held my nose and dutifully voted to send him back to the White House. Then I crossed the aisle to vote for John McCain in the primaries to do my little bit to tank W's candidacy here in Rhode Island, before crossing back to vote for Al Gore and the odious Joe Lieberman. Nope, no passion there. Just anger at how Florida could so royally fuck things up with the all-important, seemingly all-powerful ballot. How hard could it be to design a ballot that someone could follow? And then again in 2004, the desire to remove W was a greater impetus to vote than to support Kerry. But the state of things changed again when Barack Obama came onto the scene. I imagined that this was how it felt to see the Beatles or to be entranced by Kennedy and Camelot. Suddenly, and for the first time, there was a candidate I truly cared about, one who spoke with eloquence and power, who envisioned a state and a nation that reflected our better angels and the potential for our future. I shouted with joy when he was elected and then did it again when he was returned to the White House four years later. The state of our union was strong, and bright, hopeful, and with the birth of our daughter, multicolored like our family. And that's why the last four years have felt like such a horror show. Stunned horror as the election returns rolled in on that night, revealing that the con man, the bigot, the abuser, the fraud, was going to occupy the highest seat in the land. Even the sight of millions protesting only weeks after his inauguration was not enough to overcome the horror. Of his immediate actions to bar the doors to those in need, and then the seemingly never-ending feelings of fury and grief and worry and more horror at the steady drumbeat of corruption, of hatred, of denied equality, of fear of the world my daughter was growing up in, with a sick, twisted little man telling her and millions of others around this nation that they weren't right, that they weren't as human." "'that they weren't worth the same as him and his followers. "'And the state of our nation was weak, "'riddled through with holes like a wooden boat "'pierced by worms and taking on water, "'sinking as the captain declared "'that all who followed him would stay dry. "'I went to town hall and filled in my ballot "'the week before election day this year, "'hoping against hope that things might change "'as it was ingested by the machine.' But I entered election day wondering if our state was capable of change, if there were enough people, if there was enough passion to stand up and say, no more. I went to bed election eve wondering if that country I'd seen through Obama's words and the deeds of him and his brilliant wife, his vice president, and his team had made so tantalizingly real for eight years was really and truly gone. For another four years of the con man might have been too much for our state to bear, to ever change and turn away from the course he sought to set. In the coming days, as wary confidence began to creep back in, my daughter asked me incessantly, What's the score? Who's winning? And I saw in her the same blossoming hope that led me to check my election tracker every 15 to 20 minutes to get that next little jolt of positive energy. No longer was I doom-scrolling. Instead, I was glee-freshing, sucking up every positive change in the numbers I found online, and finally bursting into tears at that glorious moment when Pennsylvania was called. Then I blinked away tears again that night, as I saw my daughter's eyes locked like lasers on the brilliant, beautiful, dark-skinned woman who stood up and declared victory not only for Joe Biden and her, but also for all the little girls who needed to see that their way was not going to be barred, that things could change for the better, that our state could and would be strong again. And with a smile, I ignored the petty, pitiful, terrified little man living in his fantastical realm and frantically denying reality. At least the Wizard of Oz, behind his curtain and in his booth in his gleaming emerald state, knew he was a fraud, and simply did the best he could. Thanks for listening to this episode. Like I said, I think we can probably all agree that it's been a very long week. It felt good to get this down on paper, and now here on the Epic Pencil. I hope you found it a worthwhile listen, and if my political leanings and preference aren't quite your cup of tea, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we can agree to disagree politely and move on to other things and continue our conversation here on the podcast and at PretendingToWrite.com. The Epic Pencil will return soon, this time with another author interview. I look forward to you joining me, and in the meantime, I hope you enjoy a great book or two and remember to support your local independent bookseller. The Epic Pencil is copyright 2020 by Christopher Watson.